Welcome to Life After Philosophy, where I interview former students about philosophy's effect on their lives. I'm Christopher Annadale. Welcome to Life After Philosophy. My guest today is Anna Bradley. Anna is a 2016 graduate of Mount St. Mary's University with a double major in criminal justice and philosophy. After finishing her BA, she went on and finished an MBA. She now works as a web content strategy director. She lives in Richmond, Virginia, and she's engaged to be married. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you're living and working right now with a particular kind of media-focused job as a web content strategy director. Could you tell me a little bit about that job and sort of what, what kind of work you do behind that job title? Yeah, it's a job that I think is really interesting, but is kind of not intuitive based on what it's called. So I work for a company called Rheingold, which is a digital marketing and communications firm. Um, and we work mostly with nonprofits and government organizations on whatever communications needs they might have. So for example, we worked on the 2020 census, like if you were seeing posters, if you went and responded online, my company and many others were probably behind that. And that's a bigger example of projects that we work on, but it's that sort of thing. And I specifically sit in our, what we call the digital experience department. So basically the website team. And my role is kind of like the care and keeping of website copy. So I don't typically do writing, but it's really close to that. I kind of do all of the planning and strategy and decision-making that is done before a page is ready to be written. So it looks a lot like user research when we, when we can and talking to people about what they need a website to accomplish, compiling resources, often I outline pages. And then once a page is live, it's figuring out how to take care of it because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Pages move, links change. We have to figure out like, is this doing what it needs to be doing? And how can we make the words better to accomplish whatever our goal is for that project? So yeah, it's kind of like content planning is my job. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of like the digital version of of the person who, you know, prepares the newspaper, the headlines, does all the typesetting and whatnot, except you're doing it in this dynamic, you know, sort of interactive environment. Mm -hmm. do, do you do a lot of follow-up? Uh, is, is it sort of creating a project and just putting it online and it's finished? Or is, the, is there a lot of feedback and adjustment and evaluation typically with, with the kind of work you do? It It depends. It does depend on the project, but in theory, there is a lot of follow-up. I think a lot of times what happens is we'll get a new project and it will be a group, an organization, a company, whoever, who published their website five years ago, thought it was good to go, and then they didn't look at it for five years. And like now things are broken. It doesn't make sense anymore. It's outdated. And they have to do a better job at presenting themselves online. So that's where my company comes in and where I come in to 
A, fix it. So ma making sure that like the content is actually useful, um, but then also kind of giving them the processes and tools they need so that when our project ends, they don't just let it sit for another five years. They're actually actively maintaining their website. Right. And, you know, I, I actually spent earlier this summer, I spent a couple of hours over a few days trying to think through and plan a personal or a professional website for me. I ended up not going with it, but I realized a tremendous amount of of planning just in terms of the content, the formatting, optimizing for phone and whatnot. I, it almost, I almost feel like I would, I would need a consultant to actually do that really well, trying to sort of DIY it myself. Even the simplest amount of content that I wanted to put up was uh, was a real challenge. It's really, it's not literally rocket science, but it's really hard. I think people underestimate like how much work goes into building a website. And mm -hmm. if you think of it, I'm just one person, like I'm the content person. There's a whole team of people who I work with who make it look good on phones, who make it look good in general. And there's whole practice areas of everything you can think of or not think of in a website. I think it's oh, really fun. Make sure you have security and mailing lists and uh, interactions and and all these things that, that mm -hmm. would need to be sort of kept up to whatever the current kind of web practice is. Is it, is it still, are things still about websites or are people migrating to apps? Is that is that a real, is that changing the space in which you work? It kind of is, It, but sometimes organizations get like really excited about apps when really they just need a website like apps are almost trendy right and more often we say a website will be cheaper and actually what you need so mm -hmm. we sometimes do them but most of the time they're not what people really want you know i don't really want to download yet another app if i can just go to a website i prefer that Right. Well, they have they have a kind of stability, right? And the, the web stretches back, you know, now almost thirty years, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's fantastic. W one of the themes of the podcast here is is philosophy, sort of after college, right? So people they finish their philosophy degree, maybe they're sort of even very high on the idea that philosophy has this wonderful intrinsic value. It makes you a better person. It has all these all these great benefits for you, sort of internally. But then once you leave college, you're not you're not doing philosophy as a as a student any longer. You're out you're out in the marketplace, you're out getting a job, you're out meeting people and and living life. Has there been some experience in your life that you've reflected on your philosophy education and formation as being being valuable for you, either in, in the work or outside of work? Definitely. And I think what immediately came to my mind is in my work, I'm not explicitly referencing Kant or whoever the case might be, but sure. logic was one that was like surprising, surprisingly practical in my career. And, you know, it wasn't something I, again, explicitly reference, or it's even like on my resume, but in my job, one of the things I have to do is say, if we're doing a website that has filters, if you're thinking Amazon and you want to find what you're looking for, or just any kind of search page, someone has to figure out what those tags and options will be. 
and how they interact with each other. So defining those labels and defining, is this an and relationship? Is this an or relationship? It's all logic all the way down. And it's really not so much the marketing of what's the right word to convince someone to click on this button. It's more making sure the content has an underlying logic and system. So, you know, I don't necessarily remember, I think if someone put one of those proofs in front of me, I'm not sure I'd be able to do it. But the the basic principles of logic have been something that I use every day. So, yeah. That's, that's great. That's, that's, that's sort of an element of computer programming, but also an element of kind of end user design. Mm-hmm. Right? If people are going to use it, it needs to respond in a way that sort of, you know, flows towards the them getting getting what they're looking for. I, I remember years ago, somebody told me after a logic class that if uh, if I'd been able to give, you know, sort of just basic logic instruction to this jury that they'd served on the previous year, might've saved them half a day of deliberation because people weren't thinking logically. People were there, there was this sort of vacuum, this empty space where what was really needed was to just clarify some issues and and sort of think like you were saying, like mm-hmm. you put tags on these things and decide, you know, which which conditions are satisfied, which ones need to be satisfied, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I appreciate the 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 value of logic, the value of logic there. You completed an MBA after you finished your BA here at the Mount. Was that was that a hard transition going from well, you went from criminal justice and philosophy to MBA and now into the business world? Do you see a continuity there or do you feel like you kind of lived through three different chapters, two or three different chapters of your life? Um, a good question. It so, so after I graduated, I actually worked at the Mount for two years and I got my MBA during that time. So I kind of like it just extended my time at the Mount very quietly. But it was very different going from philosophy classes to MBA courses, both practically, they were at night, I was working all day, then going to class, which was just like a different life experience. But also, of course, the subject matter and structure of the classes was a lot different. But it all kind of follows the same. You're figuring out how to solve problems. And it's just different tools and ways of looking at things. So the subject matter was very different, but I do feel like it was all a natural continuation. I was just going from undergrad philosophy, taking these sort of conceptual concepts and then moving to the more practical things and learning more like, okay, how does a group project really work? What are the realities of working with people who have totally different mindsets and backgrounds with me? So I don't know if that's really an answer that makes sense, but it's a little bit of both. It was it was very different. It was also a natural continuation. I think the big thing that I took from my philosophy or MBA was like kind of dangerous when it comes to Excel now. Mm-hmm. And, and when I got my job now, it was much easier for me to 
pick up and understand what people were talking about. There's very specific, here's how we manage a timeline. Here's what a risk log means. There's all these businessy terms that the NBA really gave me the words to follow. Did, did you feel like you were a different, your experience of the MBA was different for having studied philosophy? I mean, you, I'm sure, sure you were in class with people who had different backgrounds. Did it come in, in in the form of logic or anything else? Or did you feel like maybe you were just sort of starting at the same starting line with everybody else? It's hard to say because I don't know how to, I don't know what my experience would have been like had I not taken philosophy classes. I do think I found... MBA classes easier than philosophy classes. Just on a practical level, there was less reading. I didn't really have to make arguments the same way. It was much more focused on like team dynamics and making sure other people did their work. Okay. Uh, so it's just different. Yeah. Yeah. I'm asking in part because I've been sort of thinking in my own mind about the possible connections between a you know, philosophy major and business major and whether that that's a good combination for people and that maybe there's there's some connections in there that that people maybe don't appreciate so that that's that's very much at the forefront of my mind uh, i've also spoken to uh, a couple of episodes ago uh former students of mine who uh who pursued an mba as well and and thinking about the way in which coming into the graduate study with a very practical project focus might be different for different people depending on how that what they sort of brought so the, the sort of intellectual assets and habits of mind that they've brought to mm -hmm. their uh, beginning that beginning that project, but that's going to be different for for different people. Let me ask you another question, if I may, about what it's like or what it was like being a woman in philosophy, since philosophy is a very male skewed field for a variety of reasons. I think you were here at the Mount at the same time as my former colleague Jennifer Rosado. Did you study with her and did you find studying philosophy with a female professor or with other female students to be a different sort of experience? Or is, is there some insight you could give to me personally, but also to to people listening about that? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this and I have a lot of thoughts about it. I don't know how organized I'll be, but I did take Fine. Dr. Rosado. I took, I don't remember the class name, but it was about totalitarianism. We read mm -hmm. Hannah Arendt, and that was a really great class. It was also, I think, well, it must have been 2016. I was a senior, but it was around the election cycle. It felt very timely. And I also took a lot, at least three classes with Dr. Conway. So, I mean, I yeah, a lot of the class, philosophy classes I took at the Mount were taught by women. And I think that impacts the experience that I had because I, I don't know the, how true that is for everybody you know I think philosophy if you look at it as a whole tends to be more male skewed and Very so true. I have kind of a unique pers perspective and experience in the fact that I took a lot of female professors I think that thinking of people who I was in class with, I think philosophy sometimes attracts people who like the sound of their own voice more than they like the sound <laughs> of like learning other people or learning from other people. And I think that I didn't have like 
I am an, I am having a negative experience specifically because of that. But I do think that that is something that happened in my classes. And it's something that is a reality in work with senior colleagues and male colleagues. Sometimes that just happens. People are thoughtless mm -hmm. and they kind of trample over women and more younger people and so yeah. forth. But I think that having female professors, Dr. Conway once, she was telling me I needed to speak more in class because it was graded on participation. And I was saying like, but I get nervous. And also I can't think of what I'm supposed to say in time. And she said, well, yeah, but I want to hear what you have to say. Like, I want to know what you think. Right. And that like shocked me. <laughs> no one had ever said that to me before. And so her saying that I think was really like, I still, I still think about that. And if I'm ever in an experience now where someone is kind of dominating the conversation, I think of that and I speak up and I hope that philosophy students today get advocates like that, especially female students and minority students. So yeah, I'm a little bit, my response is not succinct, but does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. In fact, I'm I'm, I'm thinking my mind is racing now. It's, I, I don't know if this is to make a, a virtue out of out of necessity, but the sometimes obnoxious or brutal personality types you come across may one be preparation for meeting similar types of people in the workplace. So they, they they will be there. Hopefully, not very many of them, and hopefully you can deal with them. But you can find ways to deal with them. But also. This uh, the the encouragement to speak up. Trudy Conway, you know, fantastic, fantastic teacher, and uh, a huge part of our department for a long, long time. I think maybe one takeaway from this is that there are opportunities to try to build a sort of healthy classroom community, and that philosophy may be maybe especially vulnerable to a certain type of really assertive and even um, overwhelming type of person, but. Of course, dealing with just that type of conflict and tendency in the hands of a good professor, especially someone as sensitive as, as Dr. Conway, experienced, or Dr. Rosato, would, would be a good way of modeling, okay, here's what a, a really high-powered intellectual community doing important work, asking important questions, and not, not cutting corners or going soft. Here's how we can still get the job done while, you know, running off the rough edges of some of the some of the um more enthusiastic people and again giving people the confidence to speak as you mentioned and also you know space in which to to do the work in their own way in their own style have you found any of this to be reflected perhaps in the workplace in trying to come up with ways of working with ways of working with teams and dealing with different different communication styles different maybe extreme personalities and the like. I think absolutely yes, especially because I work mostly remotely. So if you're someone who is confident in general, but also comfortable working remotely, you are a person, I'm not speaking about you, I'm speaking, you know, kind of in the theoretical sense, yeah. who will dominate conversations. And I'm at the point now where I've gotten really comfortable with the people I work with. I will 
speak up a lot and I've had to sometimes stop and think, okay, there's this junior person on the call. It's really, it's helpful for the, us to hear what they want to say. It's also good experience for them to get pr this practice presenting in front of the client or sharing their recommendation or whatever the case might be. And so sometimes for me, it's looked like intentionally staying quiet and letting awkward silences stretch on, which I hate, but it forces the more quiet people to speak up. But then sometimes it also looks like really seemingly small practical things because it is really hard to speak off the cuff sometimes. So when we share our agenda before the meeting and we say, hey, here's what we want to discuss, come with your thoughts ready, that makes it easier for the quieter people to plan ahead to share their thoughts in the meeting. So I've been trying to implement like very small practical things to encourage those folks to speak up more. I don't know if I'm doc as good as it as Dr. Conway was, but well, it it sounds like you're you're discovering and implementing a lot of the tools that you know teachers discover teachers in all fields, right? How to let let the awkward silence linger for a little bit, be comfortable with it, draw people into it find ways of uh, of identifying and sort of elevating the the people who are kind of for whatever reason at the at the margins of the conversation. So that's fantastic to hear that that actually has has some value for you as someone who's grown into teamwork and even remote teamwork in your web marketing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for current philosophy students or for potential philosophy students? People are thinking maybe I maybe I do or don't want to pick up that philosophy minor or double major, both reflecting back on your own time in school and also on how how it's sort of shaped you and, and given you resources in the life that you're living right now. Is it is it worth it? Are there factors they should be thinking about or advice that they could take from you? Yeah. I mean, I would... So I became a philosophy minor because there was an elective that I thought looked fun. And I wasn't planning to become a philosophy minor or major. It just, I just kept adding more classes and then I had enough credits. And it was great. Like I, I would encourage any student who is interested in a class but is nervous about it, seems like a high barrier of entry or is concerned that it's not practical to just take whatever courses seem interesting to them because I know you mentioned earlier, there's kind of this intrinsic value, but for me, it has also been practical to take these courses. And that wasn't some elaborate plan that I had freshman year. I just took classes that I thought were interesting and I found a job that I also thought was interesting and they mapped up. So yeah, I don't know. I'd encourage current students to not worry too much about what they're going to do the day after they graduate. Just take, mm -hmm. take what's fun and interesting and it will follow. And it, and it worked out for you. Mm -hmm. 
Is that, was there, if you don't mind my asking, was there a period of nervousness? Did you ever, did you go through a couple of weeks or months of anxiety when you were looking for a job or, or applying to MBA programs or, or, or did, was it, was it fairly smooth and, and calm? I actually, it was smooth and calm for me, but I was, I was very lucky. I had an internship senior year and sorry, I'm pausing because I'm trying to think of names, but it was the IT department and they we're like, well, I think a philosophy student would be good for this internship. So I got the internship and that's what led to the full-time hire. And I would never have looked into the industry that I'm in now if it hadn't been for the internship. And I wouldn't have looked into the internship if they hadn't said, hey, a philosophy student would have been good for this. So I'm very lucky in that sense, but I think it kind of proves my point of don't worry about it. It'll it'll all work out. Last question. Could I ask, do you remember what that elective was that you decided to take a chance on all those years ago? It was Forgiveness and Mercy with Dr. Conway. Oh, fantastic. Is that was that her death penalty class or is that is that that was more general about forgiveness as as a phenomenon? We we did talk about the death penalty, but it wasn't the death penalty class. It was yeah, the concept of forgiveness. That's fantastic. That's a real that's a real trip down memory lane for me as well, thinking back over Dr. Conway's career and and the parts of it that overlapped overlapped with mine. Yeah. My guest today has been Anna Bradley, a 2016 philosophy graduate. Anna, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Life After Philosophy. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate it five stars and share this episode with a friend. I appreciate your support.